The reading is Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, and can be found on page 1182 in the Red Bibles. We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Steph, thank you very much. Get that sorted here. There we go. Um, That passage will be important to keep in front of you. Uh, About six months, maybe 12 months ago, I came across this book, written by a former member of uh, this congregation, actually, Rachel Jones. Uh, She read a book called Is This It? Very helpful book. Um, And it speaks to a kind of... um, feeling and attitude that there is, uh, particularly, I guess, amongst people in their 20s, 30s, who have graduated, maybe just started working life, uh, and they've got this sense that they were expecting more from their life. Maybe the career is not quite as fulfilling as they hoped it was going to be. Maybe their relationships aren't working out the way they wanted them to. Uh, There's just this sense there's, there's got to be more, right? I'm not as fulfilled, I don't feel as complete or uh, full as I thought I would be by this stage. Helpful book, thinking those things through from a Christian uh, perspective. And we do live in a very dissatisfied age, in lots of ways, and, and for lots and lots of reasons. And the problem with living in a dissatisfied age is you're always looking around the corner for the next thing. So you don't stop and enjoy what you have right here, right now. You're, you're looking for the next thing. And isn't it interesting that in our age, um, at this time when people feel dissatisfied, this kind of is-this-it feelings going on, there are a number of sort of gurus who've popped up. One of the most famous, I guess, would be someone like Jordan Peterson, who has millions of followers online on YouTube, who gives you 12 steps, 12 rules for life. Uh, the guru 
Uh, the one who says, just follow my teaching. I've got some secrets for you. Just, just follow this little extra bit of information or these practices, and that'll make it all right. That, that'll start to fulfill you and complete you in that way you feel is lacking. Well, that's life in general, but I think there's a temptation in the Christian life to feel the same way. See, there are times when the Christian life can feel very ordinary, very humdrum, very plodding and difficult. It has its high moments for sure, but it has its hard times too. And maybe if you're in a particular season like that, you're thinking, is this it? Maybe what I should do is move church down the road to that other church that seems much more exciting. Maybe what I need is some new guru, spiritually speaking, to enable me to have, you know, deeper spiritual experiences. Or someone will tell me five steps, five practices to deepen my spiritual life. Is this it? Maybe you felt something like that from time to time about your Christian life. Um, I don't think you'd be alone in that. I think it's quite a common thing. Well, if you feel it, let me tell you, uh, the Colossian Christians might have been prone to feel it even more. Uh, They lived in Colossae, unsurprisingly, uh, and uh, that was down the back end of the Lycus Valley. I meant to have a map up. I haven't done it. Sorry, maybe next week. Uh, Back end of the Lycus Valley, which was a really unfashionable part of the Roman Empire. It it was a real one-horse town. It was a small place. It was a decline. Its best years were behind it. It was declining. Its neighboring towns were much bigger and more prosperous. That's where people went for the, for the big and exciting things going on. Colossi was small. It was so small, actually, that when Paul did his missionary journeys, we, we thought about them in Acts last term in the evening service, he didn't even stop there. Now, of course, he cared about the people in Colossi, but he had only so much time, and he had to go through uh, the towns that he could make. So he hadn't even been there. Uh, And we get that through the letter, that they've never met him. Uh, But Paul did send someone, we heard about him in verse 7, Epaphras, to Colossae, and he told them about Jesus. And amazingly, uh, a group of people believed and set up a church there. Probably only quite a small church, uh, but nonetheless, there was a church there. Maybe a dozen people or so, who knows? So you've got this small group of ordinary people in this backwater town, don't look particularly impressive, don't look particularly like much. And they're told that actually this news they've believed is world-changing. It changes everything. And yet, week by week, they gather and look around and think, is this it? Is there more? And actually, if you're in that mindset, it makes you prone to being preyed upon by people who will come in and offer you something new or something else. And as we read through Colossians this term, uh, we're going to see that Paul is concerned about that. But can I say, if you've ever had that, is this it, experience? Is there more? Colossians is the letter for you. Please come back week by week over the evening service, because I think you'll find it so helpful. Uh, And actually, uh, tonight, Paul starts off as he means to go on to encourage those brothers and sisters. He calls them faithful brothers and sisters in verse 2, doesn't he? To encourage them that what they have and what they've received in Jesus is extraordinary. And not to be looking uh, for some new gimmick, some new thing that's going to be a new uh, experience or a new um, set of 
practices that's going to make them more complete. They are uh, complete Christians. Can you imagine the scene? This tiny little church in this backwater town. uh, And one day a letter arrives and they find out it's verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother. And they've heard about Paul, the great apostle who's come to write to little old us. He cares about us. What an amazing thing. Maybe he's the one who's going to give us secret knowledge. Maybe he knows something Epaphras didn't. Because, look, we're quite small here, aren't we? And this is supposed to be world-changing news. Maybe he's going to tell us that bit of secret something that will bring it all out. And then they read on, and, and I don't know how they felt when they got to verse 12. Giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Not who might qualify you if you learn a few new tricks. Not who was thinking about qualifying you, but who knows? Past tense has qualified you. You, my dear faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, you are qualified. wonder how those words make you feel. You are qualified. When I um, finished university a couple of years later, I was doing accountancy uh, and I had to do 15 more accountancy exams. I don't know quite what I was thinking after done university to do another 15 exams, but there you go. Um, I did and I went through it and uh, a couple of years later, every year, everyone who finishes their exams, their names get printed in the Financial Times. Somewhere, I think, in a dusty box in my parents' attic, I still have the copy, I think, uh, of the Financial Times Uh, from the day when it printed my name, because I passed my exams. It's a great feeling. There I am. And it's proof. I'm qualified. I'm completed. Dear faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, you are qualified. You are complete already in Christ. And so I'm just going to take us uh, through this passage, which is essentially mostly a prayer. But it's a prayer that nails that point for them. It reminds them in verses 3 to 8, as Paul gives thanks for who they are and what's already happened, that they are qualified. In verses 9 to 12, he tells them what he's praying for them, that they can work that out in their lives. And in verses 13 and 14, he reminds them what the the source of that qualification is. But that's the point. You are already uh, qualified. So we're going to ask three questions of this idea of the the complete Christian life. What, how, and why? What what is it? What does it look like to be a complete qualified Christian? Uh, How does it work? And why does it work? So first then, what is the complete Christian life? And, And here's the thing. It's remarkably ordinary. Verse three. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. First of all, it probably blew them away that the great apostle was praying for them, but but that he's thankful for them, this little group. Why? Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. No mention of great miracles, 
visions and prophecies or anything like that. We don't know if any of that even happened in Colossae. What does it mean? I've heard that you have faith and love that that comes from Christian hope. Uh, Let me put it like this. What he's saying is, I've heard that you live like you really believe the gospel. In the day-to-day of life, you live uh, like you really believe the gospel. And this is the sort of picture. They've heard about the Christian hope. The message of the gospel that Jesus has come and died on the cross so their sins can be forgiven, risen to offer them new life with God in a kingdom that will never end and they get to be a part of it. That's the hope. Freed from sin and death and given life and immortality through the gospel. That is the great Christian hope that Paul proclaimed everywhere through the resurrection of Jesus in the book of Acts. And out of that hope come love and faith. Because when that hope grips your heart, it changes the way you look at life. It changes the way you feel about life. That is what he says, isn't it? Verse 5, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven, about which you've already heard in the true message of the gospel. When you've understood the Christian hope, the gospel, it, it gives you faith and love. It changes what you trust in, what you believe in, and the way you live that out practically in the way you love and serve other people. He talks about it in verse 4 as faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people. You live like you believe the gospel's true. I don't know what that looked like in Colossae specifically, But we do know from lots of sources that first century Christians, this was common. All over the place, uh, first century Christians lived differently. Uh, So let me give you a few for instances. First century Christians were known for being generous. Really generous. Radically generous. They would sell possessions to give money to people in need. And people looked at that and they thought, wow, that's different. Why did they do that? Because they knew their hope. Later on in this passage, it's called an inheritance. They're part of an eternal kingdom that that will never fade or perish or spoil. And they can see that their possessions in comparison are just very temporary. So it's fine to use them to serve people. Because they've got possessions that are going to last forever in Christ. Uh, Let me give you another for instance. First century Christians, and even in this church, it was known uh, that that slaves and masters worshipped together like family. In a society where slaves were looked down on and treated as property, basically, Christians were remarkably different. They would embrace a slave as a brother, as a sister. They would treat them like family. Why? Because their gospel hope was they had the same heavenly father through what Jesus had done for them. And people looked at that and thought it was strange. Let me give you another one. In the first century, Christians were opposed. And yet the grace and the love with which they responded, even to their opponents, was extraordinary. They could even pray for people persecuting them. Why? Because they had a hope that nothing could really hurt them in the end. Because God had rescued them from sin 
and death and hell. The hope that's stored up for you in heaven springs out in faith and love. It radically changes the way uh, you live. The way you make decisions on a very ordinary day-to-day basis. The people you have time for that no one else does. The way you use your money. In the normal, everyday, practical outworking of life. This Christian hope changes everything. It did in Colossae. It did all through the world, actually. In in verse 6, Paul reassures them, I think, and says, look, in the same way, the gospel's bearing fruit and growing through the whole world, just as it's been doing among you. It's not just you. It's having the same effect everywhere. You're part of the same thing that's going on everywhere, Colossians. And I think verse 7 reassures them again that Epaphras, the one who told them the gospel, he told them the, the true gospel. You don't need to worry about finding something else or that there's something missing or that there's something more. You were told the true message of the gospel and it really has affected your life. It might seem ordinary. You might not even notice it because you're just going about your daily life. But other people notice. It's ordinary, but it's remarkable because other people are remarking. How do I know that? Because verse 4, Paul says, we have heard. Verse 8, Epaphras himself told Paul and his companions. Verse 9, since the day we heard. People saw these ordinary Christians in this ordinary place, living like they actually believed the gospel, and they said, wow, that's, that's remarkable. It's remarkable in its ordinariness. It's remarkably ordinary. And that's what the Christian life is. It's the way we go about our lives in the everyday. It's the way we make our decisions. It's the way we speak to people. It's the way we have time for people. It's the way we use our money that will be shaped by the gospel hope. And let me tell you, in my experience, people do notice might take time, but they do notice. Somebody in the workplace just going about their work in a faithful, diligent way, not bad-mouthing, not gossiping, not slandering. It takes time, but people notice. And people start to trust people like that. What is the complete Christian life? Well, it's remarkably ordinary. It's living life like you believe the gospel. And they really live like they... Uh, believed it. But but how does it work? So verses 3 to 8 are this thanksgiving prayer for, for who they are, who God has made them to be. Then we move into Paul's prayer of petition, we'd call it, where he starts telling them what he's praying for them, what he's asking God uh, to do for them. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, verse 9, we have not stopped praying for you. Well, what is he praying for them. I suppose you could summarize it as saying more of the same. Uh, He was saying they were bearing fruit, this fruit of faith and love. And in verse 10, we see that his prayer is that they'll continue to bear fruit. So what he's asking is what they've already been through, uh, believing the gospel and it working its way out in their lives, they'll see more and more of. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Okay, so how does this work? How do we get more of the same? How do we grow? Well, it starts, says Paul, by asking God 
to fill you with knowledge. Knowledge of his will through, I mean, it's pretty big, isn't it? Through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. The Spirit is God himself, God the Holy Spirit. And he speaks and fills us with wisdom. And we know that he does that uh, through mainly through the Bible. This was his book that he inspired to be written. This is where God's will and God's plan for the world and his purposes in life are easily and clearly set down before us. And we know early Christians met together and gathered round God's word and read over it and pr- read through it and prayed through it. Uh, and to do that, they were doing that in order to understand, to know more of God and his will for their lives. But why? You've got little words in verse 10. So that. So that. Important words whenever you come across them in the Bible. They are purpose clauses. That's a fancy way of saying they tell you the reason. Why does Paul want them to be full of wisdom and understanding? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Bearing fruit in every good work. For Paul, there's no such thing as theoretical Bible knowledge. Paul's not someone who believes in in going and studying the Bible just to understand the Bible. He's not someone who believes in understanding the wisdom and will of God for for its own sake. It has to be having a, a practical purpose. The point of the Bible is to change your life. The point of knowing God's will, the point of the understanding the Spirit gives is so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Paul is clear throughout all his writings, he believes this book is sufficient for Christians to live lives worthy of God. In whatever situation you find yourself, that that the gospel can shape and change your heart uh, and how you make decisions and all the rest of it, so that whatever situation you find yourself in, you can live faithfully for Jesus. He wants you to know about God and his will so that you can live out that will in your own life. But what's this picture doing here? Well, someone's going to correct me on this because my knowledge of sort of GCSE physics is long since... Uh, out of date, but this is a dynamo. And as, as I remember, Maynard's laughing, so you know, he's definitely going to be correcting me later. Um, as I remember, there's this thing in a dynamo called an annulator. Ooh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and uh, what this thing does is it spins round. And as it goes round in a circle, power gets generated. I think what we're seeing here is a discipleship dynamo, what I've called the discipleship dynamo. So knowledge... We get in verse 9 that Paul's praying for them to know more of God's will so that they can live out their lives. But then look how it finishes in in verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. You see, for Paul, the practical and the theoretical come together. That is, you you know, you, you learn from the Bible, okay, that's how Christians are to behave. Then you go and you try and live it. And maybe you're successful and that's a great encouragement and you can come back and share that. Maybe you find it hard and you have to come back and confess and and maybe be rebuked or corrected, and you come together back with the, the church, and, and they say, well, actually, you maybe need to think about this bit as well, and maybe this is helpful, and, and you grow again in your knowledge. 
as you live it out, you, you see where you get it right and where you get it wrong, and you see that it really does work. And so it's this cycle, and I guess that's why week by week we meet as Christians. We meet on a Sunday to gather under God's word. We maybe meet in a small group. You maybe meet up uh, with another Christian for a coffee to, to pray together or to encourage one another through the week. And that's all part of this cycle. As we pray and read the Bible together, we want God's word and his wisdom to get into our hearts and lives. So that we can live it out in life and then we want to bring it back to him and to his people uh, so we can be taught and corrected and trained and rebuked. Uh, And as we go around this cycle, what we notice is, although it seems very ordinary, very day-to-day, hard work sometimes, we go through the ups and the downs, but that actually is like a, a dynamo, a generator. That process as we go through it and through it and through it, and we might not even notice it because it happens so gradually and slowly. But as we go round and round, power is being generated, which is exactly what happens here. Did you notice? Paul is praying for them to to be filled with knowledge so they can live a life, so they grow in knowledge. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, which is a lot of power. And Paul's saying within the Bible, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Uh, as he's praying for them to to grow in their depth of knowledge and understanding of God's will as they read those scriptures, Uh, and as they work them out in life together, there is an enormous amount of power that can be generated. An enormous amount of power. Look look how it's being strengthened with all power, according to his, that's God's, glorious might. All the power of God is available here so that, notice those key words again, so that what? So that you can convert the Roman Empire? So that you can do signs and wonders? It's not what it says. So that you may have great endurance and patience. Just to keep going as a Christian requires all that power of God. When you grasp that, it absolutely changes the way you think about this gathering. Just look around. Just look around. Take 20 seconds, 10 seconds. Just look around. Why are these people here, these people you, you know who are Christians? If you're, if you're not a believer and you're here with us, you're really welcome. Great, great to have you here. Um, maybe you're wondering, why are these people here? What brings them back week by week? The power of God. Nothing else brings them back week by week. Nothing else keeps them going. If they try and do it in their own strength, they'd stop. It's a miracle. You're a miracle sitting in this chair. It takes all God's strength and all God's power just for you to endure. So if you think it's hard, if you think it's a grind keeping going on the Christian life, Well, the only reason you're going at all is because of all God's power is at work. Keeping you going. The only reason I'm going at all is because all God's power is at work. Keeping me going. And if it wasn't, I'd give up in my own strength. It does change the way you think about it, doesn't it? And as I wrestled with this passage, and I've read it before, It 
it just encourages me so much when I just think back on even the last term. And, um, you know, I'm the student minister here, and I see lots of students and student leaders come week after week to SBS to study God's word together, to encourage one another. And I know, because people tell me, they tell me, lots of them have had a rough term. They've struggled to keep going. It's been hard. could be for any number of reasons. And I see them there again the next Thursday. And passages like this remind me, that's miraculous. Praise God. His power is at work in them. And if you're that person who's struggling to keep going and wondering what you're even doing there, please be encouraged that you are such an encouragement to the rest of us. Please be encouraged that the power of God is at work in you. Otherwise, you would give up. But how does it work? By, by carrying on on that cycle. That's what generates the power. That's how God's power gets to work in people's lives. That's what we believe here as a church. That's why we spend so much time in and with the Bible. Because we believe that's where we get that knowledge of the will. And why we have small groups. Because that's where we believe we can thrash it out together. And help one another live it out. And then come back again. That's why we do what we do. So that's how it works. But why does it work? See, there's a danger when I describe that dynamo that actually will go away thinking, well, what I need to do is then work harder at my knowledge. And forget that the strength comes from him. You may have great endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people. It's a remarkable thing about Christians who who struggle and may feel low in all sorts of ways. And yet, maybe you've met people in difficult situations and yet they cling on, not only to the fact that the gospel's true, but they can give thanks to God for that gospel. I guess that's the remarkably Christian thing about endurance, that that even in the hardships, we we look to the God who stands beyond them, who is ultimately good and gracious and kind, and we can give him thanks for all his goodness to us. And why thanks? Because he's qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The whole thing is basically a prayer which should give us the clue that it's God's work and not ours that's the key thing, that why it all works is because of his power. But the only reason we started on the journey is because what God has done for us. Verse 13 and 14, a little summary of the gospel. Again, past tense, he's already rescued us. You see, the position we'd gotten ourselves into before we knew Jesus was one of darkness. Sin cuts us off from God, who is light. It traps us. It's like a chain around us that that sort of keeps us trapped in this prison, away from the light and the love and the goodness that God longs to shower on his people. But Jesus has come and died in our place to break those chains, 
to remove them. To buy us out of that prison. That's what the word redemption means in verse 14. to, To buy someone out of slavery. To buy someone out of prison. And that's what Jesus has done. In him, through his death, we have redemption. Our sins, those things that trapped us and separated us from God, those ways in which we turned our back on him and wanted nothing to do with his light and his goodness and his life, they are forgiven. They are removed. We were headed to eternal disaster, eternal darkness. And Jesus is the one who has brought us out of that. Broken those chains. And brought us into the light. Is this it? What more could you possibly want? (laughs) Brought us into the light and hope of the gospel. And the deeper that goes into your heart the more you really consider where you were trapped and how amazing it is that Jesus, who never needed to lift a finger for you, but out of his love, he came. Because he wanted you with it in his kingdom. The more you meditate on that, the more you dwell on that truth that it's what he's done, the more you see how amazing it is. The more in the ordinary and the day-to-day you'll let that change the way you think, change the way you act. And the more you'll want to get on that dynamo, the more you'll want to find out about the knowledge of his will because if that's who he is, if he did that for me, I want to know what his will is because I'm sure it's good for me. giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you. Well, I had a number of ways that we could think about how that might play out. We, we touched on some of them earlier, as I said, the way it played out in the first century. It will change the way you use your money. It will change the way you use your mouth. Uh, you'll be able to, to speak up for the truth because you know in the God who is truth. It'll change the way you use your time, your meetings, who you're willing to meet with, those people who are difficult or awkward, because you know God made them and wants them freed from those chains or has freed them from those chains. And so you'll see them in a different way because the gospel will shape that. But let's just finish for a moment by dwelling again on those verses, verse 13 and 14, and remember why it is that we have a complete Christian life. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Amen.